We're in the middle of chapter 8 in the very famous episode of Bakashata Melech, the request for a king. And just to catch up where we left off, Am Yisrael wants to replace Shmuel and Avi with a king, which is a totally different kind of leadership. As they say, Simulano Melech Leshafteinu, set up for us a king who will judge us. And Shmuel is not pleased, as it says, Hashem. And this was very bad in the eyes of Shmuel. And then we saw in the next verses that God isn't too happy about it either. And he says to Shmuel, almost as if to comfort him, he says, don't worry, Shmuel. He says, Shmuel, it's not you they're rejecting. It's me they're rejecting. Because the fact is, it is a rejection of Shmuel. They're telling him to his face, they want somebody else. And God not only considers their request for a king as a rejection of him, but he even compares it to idol worship in verse 8. Yet on the other hand, you have explicit verses in the Torah. Som tasim melech, you shall surely appoint a king. And you have the Talmud in Sanhedrin, which states that after entering the land, you are commanded to appoint a king. So what was so wrong with their request? And we touched upon the answer a little bit. As I mentioned, as we go forward in the text, it will reveal to us a lot more regarding their motive for requesting a king. And Shmuel will chastise them specifically on this issue in chapter 12. In the meantime, we learned in our previous year that God told Shmuel to go ahead with it, appoint them a king. But first, you have to tell them Mishpat HaMelech. You have to convey to them what is the king allowed to do? What are his rights? And then we saw verses 11 to 17, which laid down the law of the king. Basically, we see that the king can take your sons. He can take your daughters if he sees fit. He can take them for all his national needs, even for his personal needs. He can confiscate your fields and your vineyards. He will tithe your crops. In short, the king has tremendous power, as we saw in those verses of Mishpat Melech. Now, regarding these verses in Mishpat Melech that we read, which again, list all the rights of the king. There's a dispute in the Talmud in page 20 regarding the rights of the king that we just listed in verses 11 to 17. Rabbi Yossi says, Kol ha'amor b'pashat ha'melech mutarbo. That everything mentioned in these verses concerning the rights of the king, yeah, the king is entitled to all that. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, no, no. This Pasha of the king's rights mentioned, it was only said by Shmuel to frighten them and deter them from wanting a king. So it seems that Rabbi Yehuda is saying that none of this is really halacha or Jewish law. It's just that Shmuel is trying to get him to back down from their request. He's trying to scare him off. And Rabbi Kahana, in his commentary, tries to reconcile this dispute between Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Yehuda. And he says the following, that there's no real argument here between the two rabbis. They're both right. The fact is, these verses here really are the rights and privileges of the king. But Shmuel expressed it in a way or put it in a light to frighten them. That is, a lot of times it's the way you say things, the way you package it. And Shmuel put it in a way that made it sound that this king is a dictator. He'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your fields. Which may be true, but he said it in a way that'll scare them off. You know, Shmuel could have mentioned the obligations of the king. He's got to walk around with a Sefer Torah. He's got to bow down during the entire Shmuel Nasrei. But Shmuel purposely left that out because Shmuel is trying to talk the people out of it. So that's Rabbi Yehuda's opinion here. So according to that, Rabbi Yehuda also agrees that the king has all these rights. He knows that the king is allowed to conscript an army. He can fulfill the needs of his kingdom. He can use coercion. And this explanation seems pretty viable because if you go back to the dispute, it says Rabbi Yossi said, everything mentioned in these verses, the king is entitled to. Rabbi Yehuda said, he just said it to scare them. But he didn't say it wasn't true. So again, both rabbis are correct. Now, if we take a deeper dive into this, it says in Mishpat HaMelech, we read in those verses, 
which explained the manner of the king, the Mishpat HaMelech, that the king can confiscate your fields and your vineyards. That's what it says in verse 14. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive trees. But we have a famous story in the book of Kings where King Ahab, he really wanted the vineyard of a man named Navot. Kerem Navot is the name of that episode. And Ahab really craved Navot's field, but he couldn't do anything about it until his evil wife Jezebel sets up a bogus trial. She has Navot killed, false witnesses, the whole deal. So the question is, why didn't Ahab just seize the field of Navot? Because according to what we read, the king can't seize your fields. So there's a few possibilities. One, where it says in Mishpat HaMelech that the king can take your fields and your vineyards, we're talking about the produce of those fields, not the field itself. That's one opinion in the Talmud. And another answer could be that Ahab isn't really a legitimate king when you think about it. Nobody anointed him. In fact, all the kings of Shomron, except for Yehu ben Nimshi and Yerovah ben Avat, none of them were anointed by prophets. They were all rogue leaders who took the throne by power. And therefore, the Mishpat HaMelech listed here doesn't apply to them, since they're not really legitimate kings. Anyway, let's get back to the verses. We're up to verse 18 in chapter 8. We're going to finish off the chapter today, God willing. And just to get everybody back on track, Shmuel, in verses 13 to 17, has explained to the people the Mishpat HaMelech, the manners of the king, the laws of the king. And now we go into verse 18, and we're going to see that he really does seem to be deterring the people from wanting a king. Because it says like this, And the day's going to come when you're going to cry out because of that king. That king that you chose. And on that day, the Lord will not answer you. And Shmuel seems to be referring to what happened in chapter 7 when they cried out to Shmuel and he did answer. And they beat the Philistines. But Shmuel is warning them here, that was with me. You called out and I answered. But the day will come that you're going to cry out because of your king and the Lord isn't going to answer you. And in the verse, it says twice, on that day. And according to the Dat Mikra, that's the way of Shmuel telling them that the day will come when you will see how short-sighted you are. That because you're stressed out at this moment and under distress, the thought of a king is appealing to you now, but that's short-sighted in the long run, it's going to be a bad idea. So you can see Shmuel really is trying to talk him out of this. But it doesn't work as we see in verse 19. And the people refused to listen to Shmuel's voice. And they said, Lo, no, no, we want a king over us. Now that sentence might seem a little bit weird, that the people refused to listen and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. What is that no with an explanation point doing at the beginning of the sentence? No, but we shall have a king. Well, that no is their response to Shmuel. They're saying, no, despite your arguments you're bringing down, we want a king after all. So that no is no, it's not as you say. And it's very likely that they jumped in the middle of his sentence and interrupted him the way it's written here. No, but we want a king over us. Or maybe the no can be interpreted as, no, we don't care if the king will take our daughters and sons. No, we don't care if he can make us slaves. We still want one. And now in verse 20, they say something else. And we shall be like all the other nations. And our king will judge over us. And he'll go before us and wage our wars. He'll fight our wars for us. So we see here something new. A different motive now has popped up in them wanting a king. At the beginning of the chapter, they said they want a king to judge us. Now they say they want a king 
to fight our wars for us. And this gives us a lot more insight as to what their motivation was. We know, as we'll see in further verses going forward, that the Philistines were starting to rear their ugly heads again. Apparently when Shmuel Hanavi got older, the Philistines were no longer being kept at bay and they began again to oppress the Jewish people. And that's an important part of the background that stands behind their request for a king. They want a king that will, as they say, a king that will go out and fight our wars. They want a king to lead them in battle against the Philistines. But at first glance, there's no problem with that. It seems legitimate. Let's understand one of the major roles of the king of Israel is to lead his people in battle. He is the commander in chief, no doubt about it. King David was a commander in chief. He was a military leader. So was Saul. So is the Melech HaMashiach for that matter. The Melech HaMashiach we're all waiting for is a commander in chief. You see, we often relate to the king being a military leader as a Gentile concept because that's how the Gentile nations chose their leader. Rich in the Lionheart, Saladin, these nations chose their leader according to their military prowess. So it's not something unique to the Gentiles or to the Jews that the king should be a military leader. And there's a good reason for it. If he's not a success on the battlefield, then your kingdom will either be subjugated to other kingdoms or won't exist at all. So he better be good at fighting wars. The difference is, though, that the Jewish king is fighting the wars of Hashem. He's not just fighting for his own glory because he knows the real commander-in-chief is the Kodesh Baruch Hu. We say about Hashem, Ishmael Chama, he's a man of war. So while King David and King Saul and all the other Jewish kings were certainly military leaders, and by the way, the Jewish king is always in the front lines. He's leading his soldiers in battle. His motto is, Acharai, after me, where other kings might say, Kadima, forward, and they stay in the back. The Jewish kings are always leading their armies. They're in the front. They're saying, follow me, Acharai. But with all that bravery and all their knowledge of tactics and war strategy, for the Jewish king, his most important strategy is bitachon ba'ashem, trust in Hashem. So now we're starting to get to the roots of what the sin was in requesting a king. It wasn't the very fact that they asked for a king, which was the issue. It was their motive. They were being threatened by the Philistines and by the Ammonites as well, as we'll see going forward. And their motive wasn't derived out of a bitachon ba'ashem. Their motive was actually rooted in a lack of bitachon in Hashem, a lack of faith, a lack of trust. That's what was driving them. They weren't requesting a king because it's listed as a commandment in the Torah. That's not what was driving them. Fear of the Philistines, that's what was driving them. And that fear of the Philistines was overriding their faith, their emunah bitachon in Hashem. In their request for a king, they're grasping this whole king thing here the same way that the Gentile nations do. That's why they keep saying, like the nations, we want a king like the nations. They want a strong flesh and blood king to save them from the Philistine threat. They're impressed how the other nations chose their kings according to the criteria of war tactics and military prowess. And because that's the motivation driving them, it's looked upon as a sin. It's rejection of Hashem. Hashem said it himself to Shmuel. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Under these circumstances, their request for a king reflects a lack of faith that Hashem is the true commander-in-chief of the Jewish army. It's a relying on man and not of God. And that's the meaning of what Hashem said to Shmuel, that they're rejecting me, not you. Verse 21, And Shmuel heard all the words of the people, and he spoke them in the ears of the Lord. So this verse is coming to express how Shmuel realizes at this point that there's nothing he can do. The people have decided they are not budging. He heard it, he chaps it, 
And finally, verse 21, Vayomer Hashem el Shmuel, and the Lord said to Shmuel, Shma Bekolam. And I think that's the third time in this chapter that God told Shmuel, listen to their voice, Vehimlachta lahem melech, and you shall make them a king. It's like Hashem telling Shmuel, this argument is over, you tried your best, the case is closed. Go make for them a king. And now Shmuel turns to the people and he says, Vayomer Shmuel, and Shmuel said, El Anshe Yisrael, to the men of Israel, Luchu Go every man back to his city. And that's how we end the chapter. So what's the significance of that? That Shmuel tells the men, everybody go back home. And according to the Ma'am of the ways, these men that he said to go home, these were leaders of the Jewish people. When we say Anshe Yisrael, those aren't just the regular masses, but those are the Giburim and the leaders, the men of Israel. And they might have wanted to be partner to the decision of who the king should be. Everybody's got their favorites and their heroes and they might want input into the decision of who'll be the next king. Maybe they're thinking of somebody in their mishpacha who's appropriate for the job. But Shmuel doesn't want any of that. None of that protects you here. Everybody go home. You guys are not going to be part of this decision. I'm going to handle it. And that's why he told everybody to go home. And we'll see how he handles it in our next chapter when we're introduced to the first king of Israel.